0: Bloody Elbow presents Crooklyn's Corner, a hodgepodge of current event topics from the combat sports and entertainment community. Here is your host, Crooklyn, aka Steffi Haynes.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Crooklyn's Corner. I'm Crooklyn, but most of you now know me by my given name, Steffi Haynes. And today, I have a very special guest, the Sport Network's own Aaron Bronstetter. Aaron, I'm finally getting to rub elbows with you, and I'm a little nervous, but I'm super stoked. So thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I mean, you've interviewed Joe Rogan, so you shouldn't be nervous about interviewing me.
1: <laughs> my best interviews were with Anthony Bourdain, though. Joe Rogan... Everybody can hear him on his own show and get a really good picture of uh, what he's all about these days. And that's going to lead me to my first question. Who is your biggest interview? Like if you were to to point to one that really stands apart from the rest.
2: It's probably Conor McGregor, right? I, it's hard to get one-on-one time with him. And I was able to get that when uh, I was covering his fight against Donald Cerrone. So again, kind of a unique opportunity to be face to face with him, which is not something that everybody gets the opportunity to do. So that's probably the biggest one. Um, I can't recall if I was particularly nervous for that one. I don't usually get nervous for a lot of these interviews, but that one seemed like it was kind of high stakes. Like we had, a, we had hired a camera operator, you know, the producer was there. Usually I do everything on my own. So it had a kind of a bigger feel to it, which, uh, you know, can always leave me a little bit nervous.
1: Now, you are one of the rare few journalists that you balance having access with pretty unbiased reporting. And that's unusual. It it really is because often when you see any reporting in this space and and in sports in general, there's a lot of opinion uh, couched inside of it. So Of all of the journalists out there, and we all talk behind closed doors, and I'm not calling myself a journalist by any means, but we'll just say media in general, you're the one person that whenever your name comes up, there's never a soul that has anything bad to say about you. And I think it's because you don't put opinion with your reporting which again is very hard to do. Even on your Twitter, on your personal social media, there's, a, there's not a whole lot of opinion hanging out in there. And I kind of dig that and I really respect that because I'm unable to do it. I am a big mouth. I have huge opinions and I feel like everybody should hear them all the time, 100%.
2: You know it's funny because I actually don't know if that's necessarily true. You know, I do a podcast every single week where I do have to editorialize things, and I think the mm-hmm. word balance is probably the best word you can use. Now that, that was used in your question mm-hmm. because it is a balancing act. You know, I we are partners with the UFC technically. TSN airs the UFC events, right? So typically people will, uh, you know, I'll always have those people that will say, "Oh, you're you know you're carrying water for the promotion," but. I know that that's not true, that that's not what my my goal is as a reporter. It's to report it's to to cover the news, It's to make sure that if there is something for, for me to report, whether or not it is favorable or unfavorable, it gets reported. And in terms of opinions, I always say I wish I was more like Brett Okamoto because he never responds to anybody like he's able to just do his job, report the news as he gets it. And just kind of let it go out into the ether. And if somebody responds negatively or positively, it doesn't seem to have an effect on him either way. And I'm really envious of that because I tend to respond to a lot of people if uh, I feel like they're being unfair towards my coverage. He doesn't seem to care, which I think is a a wonderful trait to have. For whatever reason, I'm not there yet. I mean, Brett's been doing this for a lot longer than I have, so maybe he's just gotten used to it. But uh, it's something I wish I was a little bit better at, to be honest.
1: What I mean, though, is in your actual coverage, though, it's pretty – balanced and unbiased, your coverage itself. When you look at ESPN, there are certain things that they just do not put in their reports. If there are really egregious bad things, it doesn't really get covered until 15 other outlets are covering it as well. but you you just go ahead and put it out there and that's admirable because not everybody is doing that. So my question to you is how do you see the space MMA journalism, currently do you see any major hurdles keeping uh MMA journalism from thriving properly do you see any signs that we should maybe be optimistic about do you, you know that going forward there's there's hope
2: i'll say this the last event being close to the media certainly was not a good sign uh, you know what was media going to do they were going to ask mark zuckerberg for a photo cage okay, side like why stop the media from doing their jobs because he was in the building do you think that they would have been like wowed by Mark Zuckerberg. We we've, we see all kinds of people all the time that are you know, bigger than Mark Zuckerberg in terms of people that I'm sure people would want to take photos with doing media or being at an event. Even at the apex, like Deontay Wilder sitting there in media is like nobody, nobody from media is going and bothering him and asking him to yell bomb squad or anything like that. To me, it just didn't make sense to keep media out of the picture. And I think that's a really bad sign because there was really no pushback. Like the MMAJA, uh, of which transparently I'm not a member, people are paying an annual fee to be a part of it and be represented as media members. And I haven't heard a peep out of them about that whole situation. Like, listen, I'm in Toronto. I wouldn't have been at that event anyways. I, I didn't apply for credentials for that event. But if you're a Las Vegas-based journalist or you're somebody who travels to the cards, the fight night cards, first off, we were at the fight night cards during the pandemic as media members covering it when a lot of people were unsure about whether or not that was a safe environment. I know the UFC did what they could to make sure it was a safe environment or at least do their best. But we didn't really know much about the virus early on. And people, we still came to those fight night events and covered it. We went, I think a lot of media members went above and beyond. So to see an event get closed off from media members and the MMAJA, again, of which people are paying an annual fee, do nothing. Don't don't put out a release. Don't that to me is a that's a problem and that's a red flag. Now in terms of optimism, I mean the sport just continues to grow and we're still in the embryonic phase of this sport. Like think of baseball journalists covering the sport in the 1930s. Like that's where we're at right now. This sport is still so young. And you look at the development. You look at I think the season of contender series. We saw a lot of really high level fights. And even when you look at a guy like Raul Rosas Jr. who's 17 years old and you saw the the level that he had on the ground. I mean, the, people are starting to really, from a young age, learn all facets of mixed martial arts. Like this sport is going to get better and better and better at a, a really fast rate, and we're lucky to be able to cover a sport that continues to grow like this. So, so, I think in terms of optimism, everybody who covers the sport now, we all got in early, and we are, I, I think, going to be looked upon in future genera, you know, among future generations, as the pioneers of coverage for mixed martial arts, as long as the sport continues to grow and thrive, as I believe it will.
1: What's the best moment you've had covering this sport?
2: Well, the best fight week for me was UFC 223, because it was such a roller coaster. Like, on April Fool's Day, they announced that Max Holloway stepping in for Tony Ferguson, that Tony Ferguson's out of the fight. Everybody, nobody, everybody was in shock that Ferguson was out. I guess they announced Holloway, I can't remember if it was on that day, but everybody thought it was a practical joke. It was not. Tony Ferguson tripped on a wire and Max Holloway subbed in. And then we're in Brooklyn. Conor McGregor shows up unannounced, throws a, a dolly through a bus window. Fights are getting canceled left and right. Ally Akinta ends up subbing in for Max, who the commission won't let cut weight any further. They also won't let Paul Felder step in and compete for the title. Journalists like myself and Beto Komodo are at the, the courthouse instead of the weigh-ins to see what's happening with McGregor. Like that that fight week was just so much fun because it just, it was so unpredictable and things just kept happening. And we had to stay on our feet all the time to make sure that we were on top of the coverage. I just loved covering that. But I think the most meaningful moment to me was recently I was nominated for Journalist of the Year. And that that meant a whole lot to me uh, for the World MMA Awards to recognize me in that fashion. Win or lose to me, I consider that to be a a big win and a big notch on my belt. You know, people forget how often others got a, a massive head start on me in this space. You know, I've only been covering this sport since UFC 206. Like that's less than six years ago. So for me, working for a Canadian outlet like TSN, that a lot of people don't know what TSN is, but to be able to, I guess, bring awareness about what TSN is and who we are by receiving that nomination, by by having my work be recognized in that fashion, like you, you rarely see journalists nominated for an award that aren't working for MMA-based sites or ESPN. So to, to get that kind of a nomination, I think, just says a lot about how far I've come as a journalist. And I, I'm really you know, gave me a lot of satisfaction to be recognized in that fashion, even though, it's, you know, it's a token. But at the same time, I just I think it was uh, a really big moment for my career. So if we're looking at some of my best moments, I think that one is certainly in, in the conversation.
1: And and you're well worth that nomination, too. I want to put that out there right now. I know I'm very biased towards Kareem and, and John Nash because they work for my outlet. But hands down, if uh, if those two were excluded, you'd have my vote. What about, conversely, maybe your your least favorite moment?
2: Well, I don't really get shaken by much. The only things that phase me are things that are in my control to get messed up. Like if something's out of my control and it gets messed up, I tend not to sweat it. The things that have kept me up at night are, I'll give you a little bit of background. When I travel to these events and I, I cover them, almost, I'd say 95% of the time, we don't hire a camera operator. I operate the camera. I edit the work myself. I send it in uh, to TSN and then they post it. So the things that have kept me up at night are if my microphone isn't plugged in, if the recording stops because for whatever reason, something glitches with my phone, like those are really my worst moments because I feel like there's thing I could have done better or the technology failed me. Those are the things that keep me up at night. So it's not really a singular moment, but those are the things that, you know, that frustrate me uh, when I'm trying to do my job.
1: If not this career path, which one would have been the one for you?
2: I'd still be doing sports media. You know, I was – before I did this, I was working in sports media. I've had a lot of different jobs in the industry. I started off as a radio producer, late-night radio producer, and uh, went on to produce some other shows uh, that were more of an audio medium. And then I was a guest booker for a show called Off the Record up here in Canada that lasted 17 seasons. Uh, I I only booked guests for, I think, three or four of those seasons – But that's what I did before covering mixed martial arts. So if I wasn't covering mixed martial arts, I'm sure I'd be doing something else either for TSN or or another outlet in sports media. You know, I never really anchored my career or, you know, my career to the idea of covering mixed martial arts. It's just something that I ended up doing. And uh, I'm so thankful for that because there's no other job I'd rather have on this planet. But I think that. Had I not gone into covering mixed martial arts or it was never assigned to me, I'd probably still just be doing something else in the industry.
1: Now that we've got all of the personals out of the way, I want to talk to you about some topics in in the sport. So my first one, what are your thoughts on where Nate Diaz ends up at the end of the negotiating and matching periods with the UFC? Because it seems to me that guys... At odds with the UFC while they're there and they're trying to extricate themselves. And then when it finally happens, then it's like, well, we'll see. We'll see what the UFC can do. Uh, Luke Luke Rockhold recently at big loggerheads shortly before that last fight. And now he's mentioned in a couple of interviews that, you know what? Hey, maybe I want to come back. Nate, when he was in the the cage after his last fight, he said similarly and in interviews as well. So I'm just curious if you think that there's any way he ends up back at the UFC, what you think he's going to do immediately. Just give me your whole take.
2: I think the world is kind of his right now. He's got so many different potential options. If I was managing him, this is what I'd tell him. I'd say sign one fight deals with different promotions. Like, I think that regardless of what he does, if he's signing one five deals, his stock is always going to be high. And I'm the PFL and they're serious about launching a pay-per-view division, which they've already announced is something that they want to start doing. And their series, I guess their season finale or whatever you want to call it, their finals is on pay-per-view. And then starting in 2023, they've announced they want to do a pay-per-view division and do pay-per-view events. Get on the phone with ATS like you need a name to anchor to having a pay-per-view division. But if I'm Nate's people, I just say, hey, one fight deals. We're not signing more, you know, multi-fight contracts with anybody. We're going to sign one fight deals. We're just going to be a perpetual free agent. Now, whether or not that would allow him to come back to the UFC, who knows? But I think that his best option is to have options. (laughs) And I think that that's what I would do if I was his team is just let him always have options.
1: Would you like to see him fight Jake Paul?
2: (laughs) Not really, to be perfectly honest. I'm kind of over the whole Jake... Paul thing look at the ticket sales for this fight with andrews and silva they're abysmal and you know I, I i like that he's trying to take a stand for the fighters but i think a lot of it is disingenuous to be perfectly honest like i th- it's good that he's raising awareness for it but if you look at his last fight the one that he was supposed to have with hasim Rachman, he ends up saying oh well we're going to pay people out or we're going to rebook them well this rebooking hasn't happened we haven't seen anybody get rebooked, and the people that he ended up paying out were like making three, three thousand, two thousand dollars, right? Like, does that sound like a fighter-friendly approach to you? The whole event looked like it was gonna fall flat on its face, and then suddenly it's canceled because the guy is gonna be like whatever pound overweight or something. I don't know. To me, I just I'm really I think that bubble is on the verge of bursting. Like, if he can get money to, to box Jake Paul and Showtime's willing to give him money, more power to him. I'm just not purpose, you know, personally that interested in it. I think people would be. I think that it's a, a cool showcase. But Jake Paul's also a lot bigger than Nate Diaz. And Nate Diaz isn't a boxer, right? Like Nate Diaz didn't just piece Tony Ferguson up on the feet. He ended up getting a, a submission. And that's where he's at his best is because he's a great mixed martial artist. He's a multifaceted combat athlete. So for him as a smaller guy to be boxing a guy, like Jake Paul, who probably walks around in the 200-plus pound range, I'm not sure that's necessarily in his best interest.
1: Let's talk about commentary. And and the commentary landscape varies from promotion to promotion. And, and you know, some are just leaps and bounds above the rest. And, and there's no doubt that the UFC, for all of its hiccups, has the best commentary. But I would like to get your take on specific teams that you like, whether it be in the UFC or Ryzen, PFL, 1, whatever. But who, who are your go-to guys? Who do you like to hear? Which teams do you really like to hear? And which ones do you maybe think could use a little work? We're not saying they're terrible, but maybe they could use a little work.
2: I think moral and Anik are the gold standards in terms of like play-by-play. Play. I think they're both phenomenal. And I also think Sean O'Connell is fantastic, too. Like Thinking, thinking of the fact that Sean O'Connell was a fighter and he's doing play by play as proficiently as he does is mind blowing to me like i i'm shocked that he's so good at it um so i've got to give him a lot of credit i feel like he doesn't get enough credit mm. to be able to actually do play by play um versus doing color commentary now the color color commentary is where i think it starts to get <laughs> a little bit dicey like i think that we have a lot of these teams in the ufc that make it into like the you know into just for laughs right like mm. they need to Tone, tone it down a little bit. I think that you're, you're letting your commentary get in the way of what's going on. And I think that that's always something that is a red flag. I think they're all very good individually. Like I think that Bisping's very good and he brings um, a lot of really good perspective. I think Cormier, especially when it comes to the grappling, has phenomenal perspective. Um, Paul Felder, he's a little bit dry, but he has, he's very good with his analysis. And I would say the same for Dominic Cruz. But I think that they need to be a little bit more judicious with who they're going to put on – on a, a team with the the play-by-play guy. And I think I, I also think Helly Gooden and Fitzgerald are all great at doing play-by-play as well. So I, I think it's just a matter of finding good mediums and then also being consistent with it. Like finding color commentary teams that work and continuing with them. I think Laura Senko will be one of those color commentators soon too. She's very, very good. So the only team that rubs me the wrong way from the different promotions is one championship. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how much one championship you watch, but these guys are like, it sounds like you're watching an infomercial. Like we're already watching the product. You don't have to tell us about the belt. This is the heaviest belt in the history of combat sports. And we're watching the greatest of combat sports athletes in the world. And we're watching. Yeah, we are watching it. We don't need you to sell us on it. like we're, we're here. We're like, we're in your house. You don't need to be like, Hey, look at, look at, let me give you the tour. Let me show you around. Look at, let's, let's see how awesome. I'm in, I'm in your house already. Like you don't need to sell me on your house. I'm here. So I, I just wish that they would kind of call it a little bit more down the middle and not make it into a whole thing about how great one championship is. Like if we didn't like it, we wouldn't be watching it. So why are you trying to sell us on something that we're already sold on? We're already, you know, the television's on already. We're seeing everything that's going on. So that's that's my one complaint in terms of commentary teams is the one championship team. They're just a little bit too pushy about how great the product is. Like we understand that you guys have good fights. We're here watching it.
1: There's, there's a couple of you out there. Sean Sheehan is another one. But you're a guy that is very, very rooted in making sure that we have good judging. And you can, you've you taken the courses. You, you do the extra work, all the extra lead work. And I really uh, admire that. So I want to get your take on what you see as the most egregious issues with judging right now.
2: Well, first off, I'm glad you mentioned Sean Sheehan because he's really the reason that I got very invested in it. You know, I, I had seen that people were, you know, critiquing my scorecards. I went and watched his video about the uh, criteria and I had him watch a fight with me and go back and watch another fight w- with me. And I, then he also put me in touch with some of the judges and I was able to watch fights with them. And I became really, really invested in it because I, I ended up figuring that it wasn't the judges that were bad. It was that people didn't understand how fights were judged. So that's why they thought the judges were doing a bad job is they, they didn't understand how, you know, the criteria in which the fights themselves were judged. To me, one of the big issues, there's a couple of, is- of issues and none of them, I think, are the fault of the judges. I think they're something that the commissions need to look at. One big issue I have is with local judges. You know, I have no problem with local judges getting opportunities, especially for the bigger shows, UFC, Bellator, et cetera. I'm sure that they've earned the – you know they've they paid their dues. They've done what the commissions needed them to do for local events for I'm sure years. But there's a big difference between judging local events and judging big events. And I made a point during the last pay per view. I think it was in Houston, whatever the last Texas pay per view was. I I looked at the the sheet with the judging assignments, and a lot of the local judges were being put with each other rather than with more seasoned judges, with a Sal D'Amato or a Chris Bell. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Mike Bell or, or um, a Chris Lee. Chris Bell was the uh, late singer of the band Big Star. I don't know why he got in my head. But either way, I, I think that it would be to the benefit of everybody if these less seasoned judges, and when I say seasoned judges, I mean those who have judged big cards, UFC cards, Bellator, that they're put with judges that are a little bit more recognizable in terms of their their names because they've gotten the experience to judge big events and there was a judge named seth fuller um in texas who r- made this video that was kind of ripping me for saying that he wasn't a seasoned judge and he, he came after me i actually have spoken to him as kind of water under the bridge now we, we talked it out but he kind of proved my point because he was put with less you know judges that were more local judges As a result of that, he was ripped for one of his scorecards and he made this great video explaining why he scored the the round that way. But I think that people really um, criticized him for that card because none of the other judges backed him because they were also local judges that might not have had as much experience at the big show. If he had maybe one other season judge with him that agreed with his scorecard, it doesn't look quite as bad. So by having him judge the fights with other less seasoned local judges, and again, seasoned, but by seasoned I mean at, at the highest levels of mixed martial arts. I think it put him in a position to fail. Because now he's taking things personally. He doesn't have anything to fall back on where he could say, well look, you know, Chris Lee judged a 10-9 for this, I think it was Dante Mays. He judged the 10-9 for Dante Mays too. So I, I feel very comfortable in giving in having given him that round. Because the other judges didn't, he had nothing to fall back on, and I think he got his backup. And as a result of that, as a judge, the, there's nothing a commission hates more than judges going and being public about their scorecards or, or speaking out about how people are criticizing their scorecards for whatever reason. I don't know why the commissions don't just let the judges talk about their scorecards or, or give their methodology. I think that would be good, you know, good for transparency overall. But I think that really put him in a position to fail. Because had he been with more seasoned judges and they would have scored it the same, he probably doesn't make a video. He probably just goes on about his business and then he's called for the next UFC event. But I, I'm telling you, I'd be surprised if he's judging UFC events again in the future as a result of what happened. The other thing I think is a problem is the 10-point uh, must system I don't think works for mixed martial arts, especially in three-round fights. Like you're taking a boxing system where it's like six, nine or 12 rounds and you're trying to do you – know, you're trying to have people judge – rounds using this criteria this um this system it doesn't make any sense because not all 10 9 rounds are created equal and people freak out if somebody has a really lopsided 10 9 round and then they lose two really close rounds even though those were two really close rounds that really could have gone either way just because two rounds go either way doesn't mean that it's going to be split one each it could mean that one person's getting both those rounds and then it looks bad on the judges because the fighter where if you had pride rules or you said who won that fight just based on the eye test, that fighter loses and that ends up being uh, – again, uh, putting judges I think in a position to fail. I, I would implement a half-point system. I've talked about it for years of wh- where I think a half-point system is more conducive to mixed martial arts.
1: You alluded earlier to uh, what fans have uh, sort of gotten wrong and that is that they don't actually – understand the rules is there anything else as far as fans getting something wrong when they critique judging
2: yeah there's a strong overemphasis and value on control time especially when there's no damage now this past card was a great example Dern versus Jan mm-hmm. was a. Uh, I i thought the fifth round a lot of people thought that was a 10-8 round just because mckenzie had a you know a long duration of control but that doesn't constitute a 10-8 round. For for a 10-8 round, you need to have damage for the most part. Like you're you're rarely gonna see judges give 10-8 rounds for just dominance and duration. And a lot of people don't understand what dominance means. And the way that it was explained to me by Saldamato was that dominance means you're actively looking to finish the fight con- consistently. And so I don't think that Dern A did the damage. And if you look at the statistics of the fight, and I know statistics aren't the be all end all, but I think she was outlanded in terms of significant strikes by Jan. Overall strikes, she had a a lot more than Jan, but the strikes that were deemed significant were very low. She also didn't have any real submission attempts in that round. So to get a 10-8 round for just strictly having control time, it's not really how the scoring criteria works. And one judge did give her a 10-8, and I'm sure they can explain why. But to me, I think a lot of people put an overemphasis on the amount of control time because it looks like they've completely neutralized somebody, but neutralizing somebody isn't, the equivalent of, of damaging somebody and um, attacking somebody with submissions, et cetera. So I think that when people look at control time, it's not a very good measure for whether or not a round is a 10 8.
1: We were talking on Twitter the other day about why Patricio Ferre has not been promoted better. And you put your finger right on it, on the problem right away. You said it's because Bellator isn't a household name because I specifically said they should put more effort into making him a household name. And, and I wanted to ask you, when you take a look at promotions right now, let's say your Bellators, your PFLs, your Invictas, your Ones, your horizons. And you look at their, their marketing heft that they, they put behind their cards, their promotions of, as a whole, their fighters individually, and you you think to yourself, what are they going to look like five years down the road? Tell me what you see for, for these other promotions, not named the UFC.
2: Well, it's difficult to really figure out exactly how they're going to look in five years, Like to me, marketing heft is like you can put as much money as you want in marketing Bellator, but there's a massive barrier of entry to the casual fan by being on Showtime. Like, not everybody has Showtime, that's like premium cable. So, you're already putting yourself at a disadvantage because there's already a massive barrier of entry for people to find your product. I think Invicta is the same way, they're on what Axis TV and the Fight Network. Like, these are premium cable channels that not everybody has, not everybody knows where to find, not everybody knows how to get. Like these are these are hugely problematic in terms of growth. At least for the PFL, they're on ESPN, ESPN Plus, right? Like they they at least I think probably took less money. And I don't know this for a fact, but they probably took less money in terms of uh, broadcast rights, so that they would have uh, a bigger net. Like they could cast a wider net for people that can watch them on ESPN Two or whatever it's airing on cable or ESPN Plus. Here in Canada, we are on TSN. Like people will flip channels and see it and be like, okay, and they'll stumble upon it. Not enough people are going to know what Bellator is if they have to really go out of their way to find it. And, like, here in Canada, it's not even on TV. It's on YouTube. So it's like you, to just to be able to find Bellator I think is is difficult enough for the casual fan that knowing who their stars are is, like, that's, a, that's another notch up on the ladder, right? So, like, before they can even recognize how good people are like AJ McKee, for example, I shouldn't have more followers than AJ McKee. If he's this big star and is worth $10 million a fight, like Twitter followers aren't to be all and end all to measure people's social footprint. But if people knew how good AJ McKee was and recognized how good he was, there's no way that I would have more followers than he does on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But When people think of mixed martial arts, they just think of the UFC. They think, oh, yeah, are you watching UFC? Do you you watch UFC? They don't say, do you watch mixed martial arts? UFC is like, that's the show. So I think that it's just going to be a big barrier for them to overcome just that alone. Is just people figuring out what Bellator is. Like if you went to a sports bar and asked people if they'd heard of Bellator out of 10 people, like how many of them do you think are going to say yes? It's like one, two? But if you ask them if they've heard of the UFC, you're going to get nine, like at least eight or nine, I'd say – that have heard of the UFC, maybe even 10. So that in and of itself is the biggest barrier for something like the PFL and for like the Kayla Harrison's of the world, the AJ McKees of the world, the Patricio Pitbulls of the world, like the uber talented fighters that are top five in their weight class, if not higher, that people just don't know about because they're not in the UFC.
1: Do you subscribe to the belief that Bellator and and possibly Invicta, too, would do better if they changed their names. Now, Bellator actually did something about their name a couple of years back. They added MMA to the end. It used to be just Bellator, but now it's Bellator MMA. But is that enough? You
2: know, I don't really know if that's the case. Like, Invicta at least has their own niche of being all female mixed martial artists. Like, at least if you're looking for I mean, would it help them if they were called like female mixed martial, like FMMA or something? Well, probably, that's probably a weird name for it, but something along those lines or just WMMA. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it really makes that big of a difference, to be honest. I think that if you have a good product, people will find it and they'll gravitate towards, towards it regardless of the name. Like if people all knew that AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull were great fighters that need their that must-see TV, they'd go and seek them out. But I just don't think enough people know about the promotions as a whole, and I don't know if changing the name really does much other than having to like the amount of money that goes into changing the name of a promotion is it's costly. Like, is, is the juice worth the squeeze if you're going to change, put millions of dollars into new merchandise, new billboards, new graphics, new uh, cages, new you know, so many different things need to change in order to make it a different product. Like for the PFL, for example, is that that much of a better name than the World Series of Fighting? Like they changed their branding. Are they that much better off than they were when they were in World Series of Fighting? They changed the entire format, which is, of course, I think beneficial to them if they think that it's a work that it's working for them. But I don't know if the name really matters all that much.
1: All right. Now we're going to uh, go a little bit more streamlined with personal opinion and, and things that you would have liked. And my first one is, what's your favorite fight this year so far? Or if you have a, a, a few fights that you like, so far this year what what are the ones you point to?
2: I think Glover versus Yuri is kind of the obvious answer for this year, like mm. just like being on a roller coaster for five rounds like mm. <laughs> it's, that fight is just so awesome I, I gotta go back and watch it actually because uh, I watched it while it was happening, but uh, I'd like to go back and kind of watch it through a different lens now that you know time has passed and Oliver versus Gaethje is like kind of my other favorite fight. I know it's only one round, but just watching how Oliveira answered that adversity and, and the, the strategy behind it, I thought made that a really, really cool fight. Um, Just one of the best one-round fights that you'll see. So those are the two that I would gravitate towards. Plus, they're both championship fights on a high level.
1: Prime versus Prime. Why don't we hear this a lot, but I can't help myself. I love the question. So uh, what I'm looking for here is if you were to take a Prime fighter from say the golden era, we'll we'll say ninety nine to two thousand and twelve. We'll 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 put it like that, or even a little earlier than ninety nine, if you want to say ninety six. Anyways, I want a prime fighter of old versus a prime modern fighter matchup. Which is the one you would craft?
2: Well, GSP versus Usman would be interesting to me. I know Usman just lost the title, but I think that stylistically. I'd be curious to see how that would play out. I think it would be a real chess match to see how the two – like what would offset in that fight because they're very similar fighters. In fact, when Usman won the Ultimate Fighter, I think it was like that next week, Faraz Zahabi was at TSN with Rory McDonald. And I said, did you watch the season of The Ultimate Fighter? And he said, no. And I said, this guy, Usman, who just won, he reminds me a lot of George. And I mean, that's probably as prophetic as a a prediction as I would ever have in MMA because a lot of them will just fall flat on their face usually. But, you know, you always want to hang on to the ones that were good. Um, I would love to see how that played out. And then most of the time, if you look at prime fighters from yesteryear versus prime fighters of today, the skill sets are so much more evolved. And that's kind of why GSP, you know, he was so ahead of his time in terms of how well rounded he was really only heavyweight is something that I think where you could have comparable fighters in terms of skills because heavyweight fighters, the best heavyweight fighters always have kind of that one primary weapon that makes them great. Mm -hmm. Prime Brock Lesnar versus Francis Ngannou, I think would be an awesome fight. Like I would love to see how that would play out with Brock's high level wrestling at age 30, 31 against Francis Ngannou in his prime, which I don't know if that's now or if that was a year ago, because Francis is now 35, but I think that would be a, a really fun fight to watch. And even made Prime Fedor against Francis Ngannou is another great one, because Fedor was so well-rounded.
1: I love that one. I love that one. Uh, final question here. If you were to introduce a brand new person that had never watched MMA, if you were to introduce them to MMA, what fight would you want to show them?
2: I have an answer for this because I've done this before. And I always go to Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly. Like, that's, to me... That encapsulates mixed martial arts in one round. Like you, mm-hmm. you are only asking someone for five minutes of their time, less than five minutes. I think that if you watch that fight, you kind of get a sense for what MMA is and, and the ebbs and flows of MMA and how, how quickly things can change. That's always been my go-to is force, Nick Diaz versus Paul Dan.
1: That's the perfect fight to choose. The absolute perfect example of the fight that you want to bring somebody in because nobody could watch that and not be entertained.
2: Right. I've always said the barrier of entry for MMA is like 10 seconds. Like if you can watch more than like maybe 30 seconds, you watch like more than 30 seconds of it and like not be like, feel like queasy. (laughs) Like I feel like, I feel like they can win you over as a fan. Like I always think that's the biggest barrier of entry for MMA and, and the growth of the sport is like finding people that are able to watch 30 seconds or more of the sport. Because I think that the people that can't watch 30 seconds of it because it makes them like feel ill. Like my wife, for example, is one of those people. She'll never be into MMA. Like she'll never, there's not, there's 0% chance she will ever go to an MMA event with me. It just won't happen. I think that those are the people that they're never going to be able to win over, but everybody else that can give the sport 30 seconds or more and find, get something out of it. That's like the core, that's like the target demographic for MMA. I think that there's like a percentage of maybe like 15, 20% of the population can't watch 30 seconds or more of the sport.
1: Well, Aaron, it has been a pleasure getting to know you. It really has. And I want to extend an invitation for you to come back because I would love to pick your brain about uh, current events and not just these broad general topics. But since this is my first time with you, I wanted to... uh, This was the feeling out interview. This was the one where we get to know you. So next time, we're going to craft some more pointed questions and maybe get you to break down a card with us or something like that. But what I want to do with you right now is give you a moment. Tell everybody all of the things that you have going on, where they can find you on social media, where to go to listen to your excellent podcasts. You do some fantasy stuff too, right?
2: Uh, Yeah, I do some... um... MMA betting, I guess, advice, you would call it. Yeah. For, uh, for TSN, we have something called TSN Edge. So I do videos for those every week. It's really easy, actually. Go to www.aeron.report. And that's basically my link tree for everything that I do. I, I, I got this website specifically for the, this purpose. When people say, where can I find your work? It's just www.aeron.report. And you'll find everything there. So uh, I appreciate you having me on. For someone who doesn't have uh, very strong opinions, I, I hope I was able to, to get some out there um, and maybe change that perception. But, uh, I happy, you know, obviously happy to do this anytime. And people are always afraid to ask me to be on their show. I'm always happy to do it. I, I find that the amount of value that people get out of having me on their show, I get that same value by having experience being on shows and and speaking with people. So I don't think of it as, you know, time that's not well spent. I love doing stuff like this. So uh, I appreciate you thinking of me and reaching out.
1: Absolutely. And I I do want to just make sure that I reiterate that it's more about you not letting your opinion overflow into your coverage itself. I don't mean so much on your social media as much as um, in your coverage itself. And you're not afraid to cover things that maybe other networks don't want to touch. You know what I'm saying?
2: I got you. That's- I just wish that I was less opinionated. So like to me, you saying that I'm that I uh I don't let my opinions seep in is actually good for me. Like I, I like to hear that. So yeah. don't don't think that I you've you've insulted me or anything. It's because believe me, I I prefer to have less to, to fade more into the background, but I feel like that's not really the spirit of who I am.
1: Well, I think you should just stay exactly as you are because it's great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That that's easy for me to just stay myself. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep growing and, and trying to uh improve the way that i cover the sport all the time so um i'm hardly a finished product i hope none of us feel like they feel like we are a finished product that i'm always trying to take as as much time to take a step back especially weeks like this where there's no event and just kind of think about what i can do differently to improve the way that i cover the sport i'm always looking to do that
1: I love it. I love it. Folks, that's the rest of the show right there. I think Aaron said it best. We should all continue and strive to improve ourselves. And on that fine note, we're going to wrap up. So until next time, please stay safe.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, The Level Change Podcast, The MMA Bivis Section, The Sixth Round Post-Fight Show. Sixth Round Retro. The MMA Depressed Us. Crooklyn's Corner. Exclusive Fighter Interviews. Show Money. Guest Podcasts. The Hey Not The Face Podcast. And Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow. Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow Blog. And as always, on bloodyelbow.com.